Hey, what's going on? Chip Close here, host of the Restaurant Strategy Podcast. I wrote a book. It's called The Restaurant Marketing Mindset. It comes out October 3rd. You can get your own copy now. You can pre-order it by visiting the Restaurant Marketing Mindset. Dot com. Go pre-order your own copy. Uh, don't go third party. You you can get it on Amazon, other bookstores like that. But if you go first party, I see every single dollar generated through that website. So go the restaurantmarketingmindset.com. Tons of great actionable advice in that book. I'm very proud of this one. I hope you guys all get it. Uh, I, I appreciate in advance all of your support. Listen. Then don't go anywhere. Today, I'm talking with an author and a journalist, a guy named William Poundstone, about a book he wrote a little while ago called Priceless. It has absolutely everything to do with what we do in our industry. I'm going to pick his brain. I can't wait to share this conversation with you. Don't go anywhere. There's an old saying that goes something like this. You'll only find three kinds of people in the world. Those who see, those who will never see, and those who can see when shown. This is Restaurant Strategy a podcast with answers for anyone who's looking. Hey everyone, my name is Chip Close and this is Restaurant Strategy, a podcast dedicated solely to helping you build a more profitable restaurant. Each week I leverage my 20 plus years in the industry to help you build that more profitable and more sustainable restaurant. I also work directly with owners and operators all over the country through my group coaching program. It's a mastermind called the P3 Mastermind. The three P's stand for profit, process, and progress. We meet every single week to help you generate consistent, predictable 20% profits. If that's something you're struggling with, if that's something you want to learn more about, then please set up a free call with me or someone from my team. Visit restaurantstrategypodcast.com slash schedule. It's a free 30-minute strategy session. Again, absolutely free. We'll get to learn more about you and your restaurant. You'll get to learn more about the program. See if you're a good fit for the program. Go check it out, restaurantstrategypodcast.com slash schedule. As always, that link is in the show notes. We all know managing costs is one of the most important parts of running a profitable restaurant, especially now. But between fluctuating vendor prices, waste, labor, and the never-ending list of tasks that demand your attention on a daily basis, it can be challenging for even the most experienced of us to manage costs well. That's where Margin Edge comes in. Margin Edge is a complete restaurant management software that automatically uses data from your POS and invoices to show you your food and labor costs in real time. Don't wait until it's too late. Margin Edge gives you tools to make decisions in the moment, like a daily P&L, price alerts on key ingredients, and real-time play costs, all without ever having to touch a spreadsheet. Take control of your costs, work more efficiently, and be more profitable. Learn more at marginedge.com chip. Now, as I mentioned at the top, my guest on today's show is an author and a journalist, a guy named William Poundstone. He is a very prolific. He's done a ton of work, but he wrote a book about 13 years ago called Priceless. I started reading this book, do a little bit of research for a, a keynote that I was doing uh, just back in June, and I found myself dog-earing every other page. I love this book, and I love what it has to do, what it says about our industry. Today, I've got William on the show to pick his brain. William, welcome. Yes, it's good to be here. It's uh, I, I I so appreciate your time, and I so appreciate you being willing to revisit this because um, mm -hmm. one of the things that became very obvious in me doing a little bit of research uh, about you and your career and sort of what you work on is that uh, you've been uh, very prolific. You've done mm -hmm. a lot and a, and a and a sort of a broad variety 
uh, a really wide variety of subjects, uh, which is incredible. Mm-hmm. Um, and asking you to dive back into this book in particular 13 years later, um, I know presents certain challenges because you work and you work and you work and then you sort of set it aside mm-hmm. to go pursue mm-hmm. other things. So I appreciate you being will- willing to sort of dust off the cobwebs. Um, and I think the audience here <laughs> is really going to appreciate um, you diving in on our behalf. So thank you. Yes. Well, this particular book really gets into where you live. I mean, every time you go to the supermarket, you see the same sort of psychological pricing tricks. So it's it's yes. easy to keep that. Uh, For the sake you know. of the audience here, I'll let you, you, in your words here, talk to us about what's this book, Priceless? Um, what sort of got you interested in this? And, and, and what is, mm-hmm. what's the book all about? I've read it, but I want, I want you to bring the audience up to speed. Yeah, well, I would say most of the books I've written, uh, one way or another, are about a simple, powerful scientific idea that has had broad social implications. And they're very different ideas. But in this particular one, I got into the idea of the psychology of prices. Now, I remember very clearly how I got into that. Uh, I do a lot of reading of scientific papers, trying to find things that might be interesting to write an article or a book about. And it seemed to me that whenever I came across the names Tversky and Kahneman, Amos Tversky and Daniel Kahneman, there was always something fascinating that they were researching, all sorts of things. So I thought, well, maybe there'd be a book in that. Maybe I should look into what they researched. And I began reading uh, a lot of their early papers. And I found that uh, although they were psychologists and Daniel won the Nobel Prize in economics, um, really what they got into in many cases was how we make decisions. It's called behavioral decision theory. And unlike economists, they were not trying to say, well, this is how we think a rational person should make decisions. They were just asking something much simpler. How do people actually make decisions? Are they irrational? Which, of course, they often are. And a lot of their research (laughs) got into the matter of pricing, the psychology of pricing. Now, they were doing this because they had a lot of fun with it. It was really interesting. So they published these papers, which were very influential, uh, got the Nobel Prize. But along the way, what happened is that a lot of people in marketing started reading these papers and realizing, hey, there's something we can really use there. It's practical. And I think Tversky was kind of aware that that was going to happen. Both of them, uh, they met when they were working for the Israeli army over in Israel. Uh, And as Tversky said, when you grow up in a country that's fighting for its existence, uh, you tend to, to be interested in both the practical as well as the theoretical. So both of them were really interested in the applications of this. Uh, and that's, again, a factor in how they got into this whole issue of the psychology of pricing. Now, another thread of this particular story, and I don't want to get into really the, the, the weeds of the whole scientific thing, but there was this field known as, uh, known as psychophysics which goes back to the 18th century. And the idea was that they were going to study um, the actual psychology of perception. Uh, uh, The classic example they use, if I give you two identical suitcases, and one of them weighs 44 pounds and one of them weighs uh, 32 pounds, just by hefting them, you can tell which one is the heavier suitcase. 
But if you were to try to do that and say whether they would meet like the airline's weight requirement that has to be under 45 pounds, that would be almost impossible to do because uh, our, our brains just aren't wired up to make uh, a judgment uh, of, of how heavy something is just to compare uh, different degrees of weight or, or something. And one of the things they found in psychophysics is that our minds are very attuned to differences, uh, but not to absolutes. So if you're in a dark room and you turn on one tiny light uh, in one corner of it, I mean, that will make a big uh, impression on you. Uh, but if you're in a very bright room and you turn on that same light, it won't make any impression. Well, it turns out that a lot of these factors also apply to things like numbers, uh, including numbers that happen to have dollar signs in front of them. Uh, so they found that the way that we react to prices is much the same way. Uh, like now, there's been a lot of controversy over insurance rates going up because of climate change or whatever. Uh, and if you tell me you're going to raise my insurance 25%, I would get very upset about that. But if it so happens that you don't tell me that, you just tell me the new rate, and since it's been a year I paid, I don't even remember what I paid the last time, then I'm probably not going to get upset at all, just because you figure, well, insurance is, is important, it costs a lot, but that makes sense. Uh, so you're very attuned to differences when you can compare things, uh, but you're not attuned to absolutes. So the people involved in price psychology, at least the practical side of it, uh, try to figure out how you can use that to, you know, charge a little more, get a little more profit without getting people upset. And that's basically what this whole book, Priceless, is about. It, it blew me away. I mean, there's so many things in here. So when you talk about comparison, we get into this idea of uh, price anchoring. We get into the mm -hmm. fact that we always have choices, especially in mm -hmm. any any market, especially now in modern times. We, we always have a choice between uh, at least two things and usually multiples. Mm -hmm. Talk to me about, I mean, I mean, you, you really, you go so deep into the subject. So we... I love this this idea that uh, that we're not good at absolutes, but, but we're really good at at comparisons. And in fact, we're mm -hmm. comparing things all the time. There was something. There was a piece in here, and I wanted to make sure to get this uh, right away. Um, mm -hmm. Explain to the audience. There's this thing where, when something is more expensive than the rest, I'm going to paraphrase here. Maybe you can set me right. But when something is more expensive than the other choices. Um, human beings, the mind will supply answers as to why it might be more expensive. Likewise, when something is much cheaper than all of the other choices, mm -hmm. we supply reasons as to why this thing might be cheaper. And I thought that was really interesting. Our, we're, we're, we're trying to justify, we're trying to rationalize or understand the differences so that we can make a choice, so that we can make a determination of whether to spend our money or whether to, to make a choice one way or the other. Talk to me about mm -hmm. that. and. and, and sort of fill in the gaps that I've left out. Yeah. Well, I mean, we're always trying to, I mean, we tell ourselves we're very rational, we're very smart, we're very well informed, but most of the time we aren't. And certainly we aren't with prices. If you're in a supermarket or a restaurant looking at the, the menu, I mean, you don't really know how much things should cost. You're just trying to look at all these various cues you have and try to make a decision based on that. Uh, one of the biggest factors, as you say, is known as anchoring. Uh, if you go into a Louis Vuitton store, uh, 
one of the first things you're going to see is something outrageously expensive. It might be a handbag that's $50,000. And that causes you to say, well, who, who would possibly spend that much money for, for a handbag? <laughs> and the answer may be not very many people uh, because they don't necessarily have that handbag there expecting to sell it. Uh, but they do want to make sure that you notice the price because then, as you say, that causes you to say, well, what would, what would cause them to, to charge that much? It must be really special material. It must be really good stuff. And this store must have really, really good stuff. Uh, so then you're not going to buy that, but then you look and maybe they've got like a T-shirt for $100, which is also an outrageous price. Uh, but you figure, well, this is such a great store, maybe I could afford that $100 T-shirt. So you walk out with that or a keychain or something like that, and they make a lot of their profit from those relatively cheaper items, uh, but they still keep that $50,000 handbag on view. Now, uh, it, the interesting thing is that the whole idea of anchoring uh, came uh, from, from Tversky and Kahneman and what they called their United Nations experiment. Now, what they did, they had a carnival-style wheel of fortune. And the first thing they did was they spun the wheel and it came out to a specific number between 1 and 100. So let's say it came to 65. That was the number. Well, they would then say to their experimental subject, who was usually a, you know, a college student looking to make a little extra money, they'd say, okay, 65 came up on the wheel. Uh, what would you say that the percentage of African nations in the United Nations is more or less than 65, the random number that just came up? And after they answered that, yes or no, they were asked to estimate what is the actual percentage of African nations in the, in the UN. Uh, now, what they found was that when the number was 65, the average answer was 45. You know, most people don't know the real answer, you have to guess, but seemed like a reasonable answer. But when the, when the number that came up was 10, and they had rigged this wheel, so it either came up to 10 or 65, just to make the, the math a little easier in, in figuring the results. But when people saw the number 10 and then were asked, what's the percentage of African nations in the UN? Uh, their average answer was 25, 25 as opposed mm. to 45. So this completely random number had a huge difference on their estimate of the number of African nations in the UN. Even though everyone knew this number was completely meaningless, it should have no effect whatsoever on their guess, but still it did. And they explained this to people afterwards and they said, oh, I would never fall for that. Uh, but then they did another experiment and of course the people fell for that the same way. Now they also found that this, this anchoring effect would work even if you had completely ridiculous numbers. They would ask people, uh, okay, how many top 10 records did the Beatles have? Was it more or less than 100,000? Which is a ridiculous answer. Uh, but people would right. say less, and then they would be asked to estimate how many, and they'd come up with a really high answer because they'd been exposed to that ridiculously high number. Uh, so the anchoring number doesn't have to be a sensible number. And that's why you see that maybe you know, Louis Vuitton is going to have a $50,000 handbag on sale because it doesn't have to be a sensible number. It still affects 
what people think is going to be a reasonable price to pay. So that anchoring has now become uh, a very big part of the psychology of menu design. Uh, now, they know that when you open a menu, you tend to look to the right page first in the upper right uh, area. So they know that's where you're going to be looking at first, and they try to have something there that's really, really expensive. That's where you'll find the $150 hamburger or the seafood plate that's like $200 or something. Uh, so you're not going to order that. I mean, if you do, it's the chef's lucky day, but rarely does anyone order right, that. Right. But still, your eye sort of scans down and looks at the other options. And if you see, wow, there's, there's a $60 steak, well, that's cheap compared to the $150 hamburger, and you're much more likely to buy that steak. So that's one of the ways yep. they, they use this anchoring effect uh, to really manipulate people and to get them to order uh, and pay a little more than they would otherwise. So I want to interject here really quickly because when we talk about the restaurant industry, and obviously this is the podcast, this restaurant strategy, um, this is primarily for restaurant owners, restaurant managers, marketers, mm -hmm. and all of this. Your book really did have direct applications. I, I can't help but see that. When you talk about price anchoring, mm -hmm. it's something that I sort of um, understood. When we talk about menu uh, engineering, it's a whole field that was, you know, uh, sort of established in the 70s and this idea of uh, how do we uh, how do we engineer a menu so that it gets people to do what we want them to do um, something that I've told my clients for years has been to always have a quote-unquote premium item in every section you should have one mm -hmm. item that's much more expensive than anything else so here are mm -hmm. all our entrees it's a $28 chicken it's a $32 halibut it's a you know $40 duck and then $185 porterhouse for two, right? It, it's mm -hmm. just so much more expensive than anything else. By it being there, it will get ordered. Somebody always wants to order mm -hmm. uh, the big thing, right? They always want to celebrate. Yeah. And it's nice to be able to identify who those people are and you will get sales off yes. it, like you said. It's the chef's lucky day. Mm -hmm. But more than anything else, what it does is it anchors, uh, it anchors them higher, to your point, mm -hmm. and it makes everything else look that much more reasonable. So that's mm -hmm. the one thing that I always talk about. And I always say you should have one quote-unquote premium appetizer, one premium side, one premium entree, one premium dessert, even on a list of um, uh, like a cocktail list, right, where all the cocktails are, let's say, $14. List one for $22. List one for $19, where it's uh, mm -hmm. meaningfully, uh, you know, significantly more than the other because it just it'll get ordered, but mostly it'll make the others mm -hmm. look more reasonable. Then you're looking you know it's not like a hundred dollar t-shirt who would buy a hundred dollar t-shirt you, you're now saying well it's so much cheaper than anything else here and i can own a little bit of louis vuitton walking out here i was telling you before uh -huh. we hit record uh, the reason i had come across this book is because i've uh, i've been doing a bunch of reading about this because i was preparing for a keynote that i gave uh, down in new zealand back in june and it was all about adopting the luxury mindset not that we all should have mm -hmm. luxury products, but how do we apply some of the lessons from the luxury world to what we do, to what we do um, mm -hmm. in a pizza shop, to what we do in an ice cream shop and all of that. And I use the example, it's funny you brought up Louis Vuitton, but I bring up uh, in the talk I gave, uh, early on in the talk, I talk about the Hermes Birkin bag. That the Birkin bag mm -hmm. starts at a cool $35,000 at the, uh, the flagship store in Paris. You can't make an appointment. You have to wait outside to get a little card that tells you when to come back. The people line up, line up in the heat for the luxury, right, mm -hmm. for, the, for the opportunity, for the privilege mm -hmm. to be able to buy a, 
a bag that starts at 35 grand and they actually go way way up from there the interesting thing about that and this is where i want to this is a long way of going out of the way to come back because i want you to weigh in on this one of the mm-hmm. things that kills the restaurant industry is our narrow margins and one of the things that particularly mm-hmm. drives me crazy is we talk about our food cost our labor cost we're, we're trying to keep everything very very tight because it's hard to do that and i want to get our industry to a place where we can charge whatever we can get away with that what that that the benefit to the consumer is such that they're willing to pay extra for it like a birkin bag mm-hmm. right I, I was reading somewhere cost somewhere between 800 and 900 dollars us to make a Birkin bag, <laughs> yeah. and they uh, sell it starting at 35 grand. So what allows them, yeah. now there's marketing, and there's real estate costs, and there's you know mm-hmm. on and on and on, but what allows them uh, to charge this huge markup? They're, they're charging what they can get mm-hmm. away with, and there is a market mm-hmm. for it. There's 40 people in line who line up every single day mm-hmm. outside, of the, uh, outside of the flagship. Ultimately, mm-hmm. that's what I want. I want us to get away from mm-hmm. margins you know, to making these these tiny narrow profits into a place where we can have a good, comfortable, profitable living. That's what I want for all of the people that I work mm-hmm. with, all the listeners listening to this. Talk to me about that. Weigh in on on mm-hmm. that. This understanding of how, how sort of price psychology plays into that, or can play into that. Well, yeah, one of the people I interviewed was uh, Herman Simon, who was a very influential price consultant, uh, <clears throat> more for corporations than restaurants, but. Uh, he all said, I mean, even there, you're generally looking at very small profit margins. And there's so many things you can't change, but one thing you can change is the psychology of your customers. Uh, so that's really what you should be focusing on. And people, you know, it's it's sort of a blind spot. People don't realize uh, that it is so easy to, to uh, change someone's mindset, which is a very important thing to do if you're in that sort of uh, low margin business. Uh, but yeah, as, as you say, uh, uh, even uh, the, the, the Birkenbag thing, it becomes a kind of performance. And I'm sure there's hundreds of people who walk by every day saying, oh, how ridiculous, those stupid people paying all that money. But those same people, they're going to remember that. And maybe, you know, next Christmas, they're going to be buying uh, Ermi's scarf for their aunt or something uh, because they were exposed to that idea that uh, that this is, you know, some exclusive shop. So there's there's really ways that you can benefit from this uh, beyond the few who actually pay that huge uh, amount for the for the bag. It's funny when we talk about the Birkin bag, let's stay here for a second. They're obviously not buying a bag. You can go get a bag just like at our, you know, so this is the point I I made in this talk. Mm -hmm. I said, they're not buying a bag. They can go get a bag at Macy's, at Kohl's, at Target for Mm -hmm. 40 bucks, 50 bucks. That's roughly the same size as the same volume can carry the Mm -hmm. same sort of stuff that what they're buying Mm -hmm. is status, right? What they're buying is sort of belonging into a certain club. There's a, there's a, there's a rare, rarefied air of people who own uh, a, a Birkin bag. And I sort of make the analogy that it's the same thing in the restaurant, right? Nobody's buying food mm-hmm. because if they just needed food, if they just needed sustenance, they can go to a supermarket, you know, feed a family mm-hmm. of four for 15 or 20 bucks. Whereas I don't even think we could go to most restaurants and eat for 15 or 20 bucks a head outside of fast mm-hmm. food, right? To, to go and get a yeah. sort of a full service experience. It's 20 bucks probably per person minimum if we're just getting like mm-hmm. a burger and a glass of water or a burger and a soda or something like that, that what we're mm-hmm. selling also 
is very different than food, just like Hermes is not selling a handbag. And I think we have to get better. Once we get better at defining at understanding what it is we're selling and actually communicating that better than uh, than what's on the plate, I think that's when we begin to succeed. And I think for the last many, many years, we're sort of caught up in the we're selling food, we're trading food for money, um, but, we're, but we're really not. No, that's the, the psychophysics principle. Uh, since people are very good at comparisons, you want to make sure that they're not comparing you. You want to make the case that this restaurant experience is unique. You can't compare it to the supermarket, to this other restaurant. Uh, this is really something special. In that case, you don't have this sense of what's the real point of comparison, and there's a lot more flexibility in how much you're willing to pay. Today's episode of Restaurant Strategy is also brought to you by Seven Shifts. Seven Shifts is a team management platform built specifically for restaurants. Great restaurants are built by great teams, and Seven Shifts is your secret weapon to better understand your restaurant, to hit labor targets, and to keep your entire team connected. With drag-and-drop scheduling, in-app communication, task management, tip management, and more, it makes restaurant work a lot easier. From back of house to front of house, managers, franchise owners, and larger corporate teams, Seven Shifts has benefits at every single level. Plus, it integrates with the other systems your restaurant already uses, like POS and payroll. Turn your team into your competitive advantage. Restaurant Strategy podcast listeners get three months absolutely free. Get started at sevenshifts.com slash restaurant strategy. That's the number seven, S-H-I-F-T-S dot com slash restaurant strategy to get three months free and join over 30,000 restaurants using seven shifts today. As always, you'll find that link in the show notes. Because you, by untethering yourself, from comparison, you say, well, there's nothing like, I mean, there's nothing like this in the world. I can't get this anywhere else. It's it's Disney World, right? Disney World can charge whatever they want. Yeah. You could say, oh, there are other amusement parks. Yes. But Disney does not compete with other amusement parks. It's not like, do I want to go to Disney or do we want to go to the Six Flags Resort? It's not. It's do we want to go to Disney or do we not want to go to Disney, right? I mean, it's it's a, yeah. it, it, that's, I guess, the the best example that I can come up with. And I think if we went through even restaurants, uh, we would we would find the the same thing, right? So I mean, I love this idea. You're, you untether yourself from comparison, and then you get to call the shots. Is is that fair? Yeah. Yes, that's that's very very true. So, what ultimately, what ultimately got you so interested in this subject? I know why I'm interested in it. It, it was this just mm -hmm. you were reading it and just sort of pulled at a thread and just saw where it went, or. Was it early in your research you sort of knew where you wanted to wind up? I mean, this subject is fascinating to me, but what about it was particularly fascinating to you? When I first started reading the early papers uh, on this, uh, I just realized that this is something I experience all the time. When you go to the supermarket, you know, you're, you're really thinking of other things. You're not thinking of what are the prices? Is this a good price for chicken or something? You just sort of pick it up, let, look at the price maybe, and toss it in your, your you know, uh, cart. Uh, so although we think we're very rational people, uh, we have limited uh, uh, bandwidth, I guess you might say, and really are not thinking very analytically about prices. It comes down to, oh, this is cheaper than this, or I remember what I paid last time, something like that. So because you're really not paying much attention to prices, you're very easy to manipulate. 
And uh, the supermarket people have, uh, of course, learned that and uh, are, you know, trying to, to take advantage of it. It can be very subtle things. Um, they've found that when people go through a market uh, counterclockwise, they tend to buy more things. And as I say in the book, there's, there's even a controversy. They really don't understand why this is true, but it's, you know, a, a pretty big effect. They think it might be that uh, more people are right-handed, and if you're going around counterclockwise, you, you've got your right hand, it's easier to pick up stuff and, and put it in the cart, whereas it's kind of harder if, you're, uh, you, know, if you have to reach over to the other side. But it's, it's a real effect, and if you ask people, does this make a difference, you would say no, but uh, supermarkets have found it does make a difference, and you'll notice that uh, they generally have an entrance uh, on the right that will sort of funnel you into this, uh, this counterclockwise circuit. That's funny. It's, so you bring up, uh, you remind me of Paco Underhill's book, Why We Buy, which sort of deals yeah. with sort of the retail and all of that, which is uh, sort of related to this. As, a, as, as an aside here, if there are any of the listeners who have never read that book, it's called Why We Buy. Mm -hmm. It's by a guy named Paco Underhill, and it's a great companion piece. I read that, I don't know, four years ago, five years ago. Um, again, I'm just mm -hmm. fascinated in the psychology of, of how we make decisions and how we justify mm -hmm. certain decisions in our brain. It's a, we're going to include the link so you can go get a copy of this book. Uh, but that's another mm -hmm. book that is a, is a beautiful one-two punch for, uh, from what we're talking about here. Um, as you're talking about sort of mm -hmm. how we navigate through the space and how that influences our, our buying decisions. I think ultimately um, that ends up being an interesting conversation as well. Yes. Mm -hmm. Talk to me. I want you to fill in, and I'm not even going to pretend to get this right. You're going to get it right. There was a section in the book where you talk about the Super Bowl tickets. I don't know if you can remember back mm -hmm. to that section. Yes. Can you frame that up for the listeners here? Um, I'll let you do, you'll do a better justice than I could here. Talk about the Super yes. Bowl tickets. Uh, well, as you know, Super Bowl tickets are very hard to get, very expensive. They have a face value that at the time uh, I think was like about $600, but you would generally have to pay. You, you see ads, people selling them for, for thousands of dollars. Uh, so um, you wonder how do they decide how much to charge for that it would seem that uh, that they're leaving a lot of money on the table if they have a face value of $600 and everyone's selling that for like 10 times that. Uh, but it turns out that most of the tickets are actually distributed to the two teams and they can do basically what they want with them. Uh, both teams will generally have a lottery where they'll have like season ticket holders, they'll be able to uh, submit an entry, and if they win the lottery, they get to buy the tickets for that face value. Uh, but what they found, um, one researcher that I quote in the book uh, had gone to the Super Bowl and interviewed the people around him, and he found that almost no one even paid face value. He found that about 40% of them got in for free. They had somehow got a free ticket because they were a friend of the business manager of you know somebody involved. Uh, with a team. Uh, so we've got this mystique that they, they are, have this incredibly high price, but really very few people are paying that price. Uh, they do get some, but really not many. So it's, it's a case of what they call nonlinear pricing, uh, where there isn't one price, there's a different price for every person. And there are some people who are willing and able to pay, you know, $10,000 for a ticket. So they make some money from that. 
but mostly a lot of these people are just getting in for free as a perk. And I, I should add that's because they get their revenues from, from television. That's right. Nobody needs to make money on the, uh, they're making money from the merchandise, the concessions, and mostly from the yeah. TV and the ads and all that. To go one further, there was, um, there was uh, some research that you had quoted that talked about what people would be willing to sell them for or what they'd be willing to buy them for. And mm -hmm. it was really interesting that the, there were some people who, uh, who there was, they were basically priceless. Right, and this is sort of you know yeah. where you sort of bring the um, the title in, and uh, so talk to me about that because it was that that one further turn that I thought was so interesting, because then it gets into the um, it gets into this place of how the consumer values um, what they have or what they're willing to mm -hmm. um, acquire. Talk to talk to uh, mm -hmm. the listeners about that. Yeah, a psychologist calls this the endowment effect. If you actually own something, you tend to value it more than you would if you didn't own something. So they interviewed people who had bought tickets to the Super Bowl and maybe they paid $600. And they said, would you sell that ticket for $6,000 for 10 times as much? Almost no one would. Uh, they, they were glad that they had the tickets, that they paid what they paid, and that you know they were able to enjoy the, the, the Super Bowl. Uh, but when they ask people, uh, like, okay, suppose you lost your ticket. So you had a $600 ticket and you lost it. Would you pay $6,000 for a replacement ticket? Nobody wanted to do that. So they were saying, on the one hand, that their, their ticket was worth more than $6,000 because they wouldn't accept that as a price to sell it. But they're also saying it was worth less than $6,000 because they wouldn't be willing to pay that to get a replacement. So as I say, that's literally priceless. There's no number, no price right. you can name where <laughs> they really have a rational you know, uh, behavior uh, based on that price. So this is, I've been dying to talk to you about this. Yeah. Uh, the endowment effect is something you see everywhere, but I mean, especially in the real estate market. Uh, nowadays, especially, where someone has a house and they think it's worth a million dollars, but you know if buyers are only willing to pay eight hundred thousand uh, dollars, they're not willing to come down because they just think it's worth more than it actually is. And you can say they're being irrational, but that really prevents people from selling their homes, and we're seeing a lot of that now. So this idea of the the endowment effect was so fascinating to me and I've been dying to ask you about it but what are we supposed to take away from that because when I'm reading the book I go wow we're we're, we're funny irrational creatures like that makes yeah. no sense which is sort of the takeaway here but how do we apply that because you, you were talking about how a lot of the researchers you know Tversky Danny Kahneman and all of that they were so interested in sort of the real life applications and this is one area where I just I went I don't know what to do with that Tell me what I'm supposed to do with that. Tell me how I'm supposed to wrap my head around it or talk to me about how others, how you've seen others or some applications of it because I don't know how to make heads or tails of it, but I'm fascinated by it. Mm -hmm. um, yeah, uh, there's still controversy among the psychologists as to why we really have this thing that, that we, we overvalue the things we have and undervalue the things we don't have. Uh, the only theory I've heard is that it just makes people a little more content with what they've got, you know, and uh, and not always chasing someone else. 
Uh, but as, as they've been able to show, it's a very strong effect, and it does definitely affect prices. So that doesn't scan, though, with our very commercial capitalism, uh, capitalist mm-hmm. environment. Our, our, our entire economy yes. is built on FOMO. You know, you have to, you've got to buy the next thing. So you're in the club. You've got to get this kind Mm -hmm. of car. You want a bigger house. You've got to go on this trip. I mean, we've all got these phones here that we get to look at fabulous places all around the world. And don't you Mm -hmm. wish you were here? How does that, because that is something that I think we do actively Mm -hmm. sell in the restaurants, especially now when, if we agree we're not selling food, we're selling an experience, Mm -hmm. we're selling, um, the pampering we're selling all of that so where does that fit in this this sort of desire or this need to have something uh, to acquire to acquire something well the endowment effect um does not mean that you don't uh, you know lust after other things that you see out there so you still have this fomo effect uh, but it just means that if you feel that some, it's very hard to give up something that, you know, you consider yours and, you know, particularly if you have to set a price for it. But if someone else is setting a price for something that you've decided is alluring, uh, you, you will definitely, you know, be interested in that. So it's something that, that uh, the, the, the marketers have to, to surmount, I would say, the endowment effect. Uh, but if, if you're really spending your money, uh, there isn't really an endowment effect with money. So as long as you're, you're not asking people to trade in, you know, some, some great thing they have, like in real estate, basically, where you, you have one home and you're going to trade it in for another one. Uh, as long as you're not doing that, um, the endowment effect really usually isn't too much of a roadblock. Talk to me about, so the key here in being able to one of my takeaways was, and, and sort of you're fortifying it here, but the key here to being able to charge whatever we want to charge, and I'm not talking about gouging, I'm not talking about that, I'm just talking about getting a healthier margin in our industry, which is so difficult. The key is to create something that no one can compare, right? That, that, so that there can be no comparison, because yes. we look at pizza and we say, and they're a forty dollar pizza. I'm not penning that because I can get an eighteen dollar pizza down the street. Um, so the key is to create something that is beyond compare. Is that a fair way of saying it? Yeah, exactly. Uh, either either the product itself is beyond compare, or the pricing is is something you can't compare. Uh, an example of that is the practice uh, of bundling in in restaurants like fast food combo meals. Uh, or prefix meals at, uh, at, at restaurants. Uh, the reason they do that in part is that it makes harder to, to make comparisons. Well, first of all, the bundle promises something for practically free. Like if you're buying a burger and a soft drink a la carte, um, you know, uh, and add fries, it costs one thing, but it's cheaper if you get the bundle, the, the combo meal. Yep. Uh, so everyone figures, well, that, that's a good deal. I think I'll do that. But it has another effect, and, and it is that it makes it harder to compare. Because maybe McDonald's has a hamburger, Burger King has a hamburger. But once you throw in curly fries or a particular type of soft drink or something, uh, you can't really get the exact same thing at another restaurant. So it's a little harder to compare. And another thing they do, you'll notice fast food combo meals are always changing. 
uh, they'll bring like McRib or something and, you know, keep it for a few months and then it's gone. Uh, so by the time you go there again, you can't buy the exact same thing uh, and you can't make the, the price comparison. So that's, that's one way of doing that. Uh, prefix meals, for instance, uh, as, as Richard Thaler, famous economist, said, one of the reasons they do that is so that you can't get outraged at paying $20 for two scallops. Uh, maybe that's how much they're actually charging, but when you're actually paying $75 for a full-course meal, uh, it's hard to know what what cost how much and whether it's too much. Yeah, yeah, I, I love that. I think that's, now we get into some really, uh, I think, salient takeaways, things that we can, that the listeners can sort of mull over and apply. Um, what other applications, as you think back to the book you wrote, uh, you know, more than a decade ago, as you now, I assume you dine out, uh, you know, more than yes. more than once a month, you know, uh, as as yes. most of us, you know, now dine out at least maybe once or twice a week. As you've sort yeah. of had time to think about this and, and live with it and and see the mm. ideas get applied or not applied or applied right and how. Mm-hmm. How have you seen uh, other applications of sort of uh, the work you pointed to and sort of the conclusions you drew in the book? Well, you see it all the time, uh, dining out particularly. Uh, I, I tried to tone it down a little, but after I first wrote this book, I'd be out with friends and be going down the menu saying, see why they did this, see why they did this. Uh, <laughs> one of my favorite things, I, I think, was uh, bracketing, which is a name I had never heard of. Uh, where you have two sizes of something like the small salad or the half salad and the full salad. Uh, And I've often wondered, you know, which one should I get? Because usually they don't even tell you how big they are. You just have to sort of figure from the price, which is not necessarily a a good way of telling. Uh, But the reason they do that is, again, most people assume that the the smaller one is going to be a good deal. Now, actually, that smaller one may be the salad they really intended to sell all along, and the price is what they intended to, to charge all along. But by having this uh, alleged full-size salad that's more expensive, uh, it, it just creates this contrast in your mind, and you think, well, if, I, if I'm really hungry, maybe I will get the big salad. But if not, I can get that, that half salad, and boy, I can pat myself on the back because I'm being really smart. I'm getting a good deal, even though not necessarily. Yeah, I, I love it. Yeah, bracketing. We do that with pastas. We do that with uh, mm-hmm. just about a whole bunch steaks. of things. Like you said, the yeah. salads, yeah, steaks. Yeah. Uh-huh. Perfect example. Um, what have I not had the foresight to ask you here today? Uh, I want to be respectful of your time. I've got a bunch of qu- handful of questions that I ask everybody who comes on the show. Mm-hmm. So I want to make sure we leave time for that. What else struck you as you, uh, you know, as I reached out and asked you to sort of um, dive back into this book and specifically to, to talk about sort of its applications to, uh, as it relates to the restaurant industry, what else have I not thought to ask? What have I, what is I, have I neglected? What else should we be talking about now while I've, while I've got you sitting in the hot seat? Well, I think it's, it's the whole idea that uh, people just naturally deny that they are susceptible to things like anchoring. Uh, in the book, uh, I quote the, the old saying, the greatest trick the devil ever pulled is convincing people he doesn't exist. 
And that's basically true with anchoring with all these psychological effects because we go around convinced that we're more rational than we are, but actually we're very easy to manipulate like that. It's funny, right? We we were, we were funny, yeah. irrational people. We're emotional creatures, and mm-hmm. we, make, um, we, make pur- we make purchase decisions, um, decisions about where to spend our time and our money um, based, on, based on emotion. And I think it's foolish to, um, to ignore that. I think uh, Malcolm Gladwell has written a lot about it, certainly Thinking Fast and Slow. Mm-hmm. Daniel Kahneman's book um, is so much about this. Um, Adam Grant does a fair amount of writing about this in, in sort of another part of the world, and, and you've encapsulated it so well and taken a huge... Um, I mean, volumes of research and distilled it down in very um, easy to understand. Mm-hmm. They're, they're, they're punchy little chapters, which I love. Yeah. Um, and it just sort of draws the reader through. I mean, it's dense because there's a lot of research mm-hmm. in there, but you do such a good job mm-hmm. to, to frame it and, and bring it across to uh, maybe a pop science audience who, who isn't, uh, isn't going to read the, mm-hmm. uh, the journals in the same way that you're doing. Yeah. Well, friend, friend compared it to popcorn, like you can get a handful of popcorn in each chapter. So it's 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 a quick read, uh, I would say. Yeah, uh, it's uh, I had to slow down purposely because I was reading it really fast. Um, and especially mm-hmm. a book like this, where, again, it's sort of related to other things that I was thinking about and working on. Um, mm-hmm. I sort of tried to slow down, take a lot of notes. Uh, I dog eared a lot of pages famously. My my wife made fun of me because she said she was looking over at me we're laying in bed and i'm just sitting there reading she's like you just dog-eared page 268 and then 269 you look ridiculous like i just you can't and i said well you know it's just i just want to make sure she's like you're an idiot um i got five questions i ask everybody who comes onto the show are you uh, are you game to answer these for me yeah definitely great first question what is the last great meal you had I went to Rosalind's Ethiopian restaurant in Los Angeles and had a, uh, I guess it was lamb and vegetarian combination on injera bread. And it was absolutely spectacular. Love it. I went out for Ethiopian for the very first time just a few months ago, and I loved it. It's so good. Messy, messy, but very, very good. Um, I love that. What's the last great hospitality touch you've had? Um, well, this may be very minor, but it was a lifesaver. Uh, I, I was in New York. I had traveled without a charger for my phone, which obviously is a dumb thing to do. Uh, but the hotel there did supply one and uh, didn't charge me for it. And I really, really was very grateful for that. Can I tell you? Almost across the board, every answer I get to that question is something small and relatively insignificant, but made an impression on the person who told the story. And it's my one takeaway. Mm -hmm. I guess I I sort of highlight this every time I get to this point. I say it takes so little to make an impact Mm -hmm. on somebody. I mean, every one, every time I've asked pretty much. Um, I've gotten some mm-hmm. silly little answer like you just gave, but it was a big deal because it mattered to you. And so, mm-hmm. you know, yes. the fact that somebody sort of recognized it and, and did it makes makes such a huge difference. Mm-hmm. The point is, it takes and so little to do. Yeah, yeah, yeah 100%. Mm-hmm. It takes so little to do the right thing. It takes so little to make someone feel seen and make them feel important. Mm-hmm. All right, third question. Um, 
I want you to think to the restaurant industry. You obviously dine out a lot, and you're sort of not in it in the same way that maybe I'm in it or that that the listeners are in it. But if there's one, uh, if you could, uh, if a genie came down, could grant you one wish as it related to our industry, to restaurants, what would you what would you wish for? What drives you crazy? What we what do you think could be better? What what what's what's the thing you'd wish for if you only get one wish? Uh, one thing I've noticed that sometimes when I really like a dish on a restaurant, uh, the next time I go there, it won't be on the menu anymore. Uh, I realize that it's good to change things around and that's what they're doing, but still, maybe it's the endowment effect. Uh, you know, I feel like I, I had this restaurant and I had a, a dish I really liked. Uh, it does seem to be the things that they take off the menu are often the things that I really like. <laughs> Maybe other people don't, but I don't know. So it's really funny. I've got two comments for that. Number one, um, either they're doing what I suggest and going and looking at their product mix report and seeing what's selling mm -hmm. well and what's not selling well and the things that aren't selling well that they mm -hmm. do get rid of so we can focus, run yeah. with less labor, do what we do really, really well. You might just be picking the obscure stuff. I have gotten stung by that as well. Um, and I can only yeah. blame myself because I give a certain kind of advice every week when I turn on the microphone here. The other thing that I will say is, especially as this relates to the last, let's say, 12 to 14 months, as the cost of uh, goods has gone way, way up, it was really difficult to be able to serve maybe the same dish they had served for years because you just couldn't get the pricing that you needed to be able to keep it at a mm -hmm. price that was low enough for the consumer and say, well, I could keep this on the menu, but I got to increase the price from 45 to 62. And I don't think yeah. anyone's going to pay $62 for this dish. And that was something that we really saw a lot of over the over the last year. So I wonder if that's not a little bit of what's happening in your neck of the woods, too. Yeah, I'm, I'm sure it is. All right. I always ask this question and you're going to answer it differently than I think a lot of people do. And I think that's going to be good. So I always say, what would you tell someone who's about to open their first restaurant? And obviously, you're not going to come at it from the perspective of experience of having opened a bunch of restaurants. But again, mm -hmm. you've certainly dined at restaurants a lot. You think a lot about mm -hmm. the industry. What, what's something you would tell someone who's about to open their first restaurant? Well, I would say think of what's going to make this restaurant unique. Is it a particular type of food? Is it the setting or whatever? Uh, but there has to be some reason to go to that restaurant as opposed to something else. Uh, so I think if you would focus on that, uh, it would probably be a good thing. That is music to my ears. It's literally uh, that could basically be the tagline of this show. It's gonna mm -hmm. be. It's gonna go on my grave. It's gonna go on my gravestone. You have made me very, yeah. very happy. Um, okay, last question. <laughs> um, when you look at the future and the future of restaurants, uh, mm -hmm. looking five years down the line. Um, as you've watched the industry change, as uh, a lot of this sort of behavioral psychology has made its way in, what it's, uh, what's coming? What's coming down the line five years into the future of restaurants? Um, what do you think is coming that maybe other people don't see coming? Well, I mean, restaurants are fun. I mean, we're talking about price psychology and all, which is an important thing. But restaurants are fundamentally about the food and the experience. So I think that's kind of going to stay the same. Uh, I imagine there will be greater professionalism in pricing uh, because we've seen that in the past and still seems to be continuing. Um, I don't know what else to say. I don't think artificial intelligence is going to be a big issue in restaurants, uh, at least in the next uh, five years. But uh, 
but I would hope that you know uh, they can use this this price psychology uh, to enable these great you know artists in the sense um, you know chefs and uh, and the managers to to really continue doing what they love. Yeah. Yeah, it's interesting. It was funny because I just got back from uh, a conference that's held every year uh, this month. It's called FS Tech. Uh, it happens down in Texas, um, down in Dallas every year. And it's specifically the intersection of hospitality and technology. And this year, more than uh, more than past years, uh, really AI has stepped up. And there were all these AI tools that people were testing out and specifically almost like, how do you replace the waiter? How can you have a conversation uh, about a certain dish. Hey, I'm in. The, there was um, a, basically a, a stand-in for a sommelier, so I'm looking for uh, for a wine. They say, "Great, are you looking for a red wine or white wine?" Uh, I'm looking for a red wine. Great, do you know what you're eating? You know, uh, yeah, I think I'm going to have the duck. What's being served with the duck? You know, it's like, and or they or you could program it. You you wrote what the ingredients were, what the preparation was for the duck, and it was a back and forth as if you'd have it at a nice restaurant with a sommelier. But it was all being done via uh, AI, and I just thought, oh, that's a really an interesting um, case study uh, or use case, I should say, for yeah. for AI that um, that maybe does have the direct application. Now, do I think 15 tables in a restaurant are all going to be talking into an iPad as they're working back and <laughs> forth? I, I I don't know, but it was definitely yeah. it definitely made me perk up and said, oh, I can I can see it, I, I see that. So, but generally. I agree with you, and I think it's a really a really smart statement. So I appreciate that. Thank you. Yeah, listen, um, William, I appreciate uh, I appreciate the book you wrote. I appreciate you taking the time to sit and chat about the book um, now, mm -hmm. thirteen years ago, and and being willing to yeah. to dig it up and sort of dust off the cobwebs. Uh, there's a lot that you do. There's a lot that you have been working on. I'll give this as an opportunity to uh, for you to tell the listeners where they can go to learn more about you. Uh, maybe tell them what you're working on now. What what's sort of uh, mm -hmm. what's sort of interesting to you? Um, where should people go to to discover that? Yes. Well, I've got a website, uh, William-Poundstone.net uh, or .com rather, um, and you can. Um, Basically, I mean, look on Amazon under William Poundstone is an easy way to find some of my books. Uh, right now, I'm working on a second uh, edition of a book called Fortune's Formula, which I again uh, published some time ago. Uh, it's about a scientific uh, betting system that has become very important on Wall Street, and it ties into organized crime and a lot of other interesting uh, topics. Uh, but a lot has happened since I wrote the book, so I'm writing a much expanded second edition, and it should be out maybe uh, next year. Amazing. Um, I really do appreciate your time. I really appreciate all your insight and everything. Thank you very much. Mm -hmm. Enjoy the rest of your day. Well, thank you. It was a pleasure. So once again, I want to thank William for taking time out of his day to sit and and dig back into the uh, through the cobwebs to uh, to revisit this book uh, and to share some of his insights with all of us. I hope you got a lot out of it. Hope this gave you something to think about. Right, this is not a tactical how-to. Right, it's not how you can apply these ideas. But I hope the ideas resonated with you and you start thinking about ways that you can uh, sort of adopt some of this stuff. Um, to help make more money in your restaurant. I use these ideas and I use now this book quite a bit. I promise you it will have a profound effect on your business. 
please go check out William's website. Learn about this book. I'm going to include a link for you to buy the book as well. I'm going to include a link uh, to Paco Underhill's book, which we talked about on the show, Why We Buy. And then go check out some of the other work he does. Go explore this. Apply it to your business. Listen, I appreciate all you guys being here. Thank you very much. Quick reminder again about the book, TheRestaurantMarketingMindset.com. You can go get your own copy. You can pre-order it right now. I appreciate all the continued support, and I will see you next time.